Totally Football Show. Today, Liverpool are world champions, winning one-legged final appropriately with Flamingo. Watford give Man United most painful Pearson surprise since Prince Albert. And in major break with Christmas tradition, Arsenal and Everton wake up next morning regretting the shots they didn't take. We run up all the weekend's news and look ahead to Boxing Day in this Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Merry Christmas, listener. Uh, here we have uh, today on this, this special special show, uh, Michael Cox from The Athletic. Hi, James. Hi, Michael. Uh, in from uh, Football 365 and The Eye, it's Daniel Story. Good morning, James. And, well, from Russia, Sasha Gurionov. Ho, 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 James. Ho, 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 ho. I'm compelled to say that Sasha's opinions do not necessarily re- reflect those of... <laughs> Muddy Knees Media. Paul Mannering says, can Sasha please start the show by singing Queen Champions of the World, which is actually the name of the song. That's what it's called. It's uh, not an original Liverpool song, so I would refuse to sing it. But okay. we are the champions of the world. Well, yeah. What an emotional time for you, Sasha. I know it's wrong because you became club world champions, but I was going to do that a bit later on because it didn't feel like the biggest story of the weekend. I Do you I'm get easy. that? Or am I, I, am I wrong? I, I, I get that, but I have to say... Well, through my emotional investment on Saturday, yeah. it felt like it was the biggest story. Right. But I understand there was so much that happened this weekend. To be honest, when I was at um, White Hart Lane yesterday, um, it didn't really even feel that Lampard Mourinho was the biggest story because so much was, or for me anyway, because there was so much talking about Arteta, Arsenal, how right. the mess it is, Ancelotti arriving at Everton. And it was almost the game that was the worst game of all time. Everton-Arsenal actually had so much going on off the pitch. Right. Maybe that was the actual biggest story of the weekend. Or maybe Bournemouth-Burnley. Possibly, possibly. What was your game of the weekend, Daniel? It certainly wasn't the one I was at, which was Everton Arsenal, ah. which was, uh, I think, uh, I was saying to before the show, I, it's impossible to say it's the worst game I've seen because those are automatically the games you forget about. Um, I can't remember seeing a worse Premier League match. Certainly not live. It was, it was dreadful. As we were discussing before the show, you said they were obviously trying to impress, but in a really bad way. Yeah, I think they were trying to impress in a don't make any horrific mistakes sort of way because that's how both teams have sort of been defined in terms of defending this season so I suppose in terms of impressing the new managers they thought look just clear it if you get it and that's what it turned into a, a Sunday league hit it long match it was it was dreadful I think Arsenal had two shots on target one of which was a P-roller shot and one which was a decent chance for Aubameyang Everton to have a single shot on target it was awful Wow Move on Michael What game of the weekend Yeah, I thought Tottenham Chelsea was a great game. All right. Certainly for an hour after the red card, it died a bit. But okay. yeah, really yeah, we'll, we'll start off with that then. Battle for fourth place. Chelsea, the incumbent. Spurs with a victory here would have moved past them and Jose Mourinho's old uh, protege, uh, Frank Lampard. A game, first of all, that was marred not just by the red card but also by quite a serious-looking case of uh, racist abuse, Sasha. Well, where we were sitting in the press box, this was actually happening on the other side of the pitch, and it's quite. In those circumstances, it's difficult first to see what the commotion is all about. So there was a delay, and then once you realised, um, when the referee, I think, came to talk to the managers, ah, something tweaked. But also, what we saw, there was, um, I think, a cup of coffee thrown at Kepa. He had to throw it back, so obviously tempers were getting afraid on the other side of the pitch. Uh, but you couldn't immediately know exactly what it was all about. Once it transpired what it was, 
I mean, the managers after the game, I think Mourinho said, you know, the protocols were followed in terms of speaking to the managers and, you know, proceeding from that. But at the same time, I'm not really sure the Premier League was aware of what the protocol was supposed to be because on 73 minutes, on 83 minutes and 93 minutes at 10-minute intervals, um, they followed announcements that um, racism was interfering with the game. There was nothing obviously happening on 73rd, 83rd or 93rd minutes. So it right. looks like they were just putting out announcements because that's what we should do. So I'm not sure that they knew how to react to this. Um, at the same time, evidently, uh, Rudiger totally heard something and I speak, they were very adamant about, about it. Uh, it's unclear to me how many people uh, and what happened to them. And I think this is when where the CCTV footage from Spurs are going to have to come in. You've all been going to football for years. The impression is that things are getting worse week by week. Is that fair or is it just that the media is highlighting it more? Well, I don't think it's the media highlighting more because these things always start with as the instant yesterday starts with a player pointing it out, I don't think it would have been picked up by the media had Antonio Rudiger not called it out and he was wholly right for doing so. I think it's true to say that people at football matches perhaps feel more empowered now. I think it's a kind of dual thing. Firstly, I think the kind of rise of tribalism amongst football supporters makes them behave in more extreme ways than they ever used to. But the reality is, is you don't racially abuse a footballer unless you are racist yourself. So it's mm. not, it's not football's, not football's disease. It's society's disease, and f- football provides a platform for it. But football can also lead on it. It can say, well, this is a, a general problem in society, but we are one of the most influential, you know, cultural tenants in in England why don't we try and lead on this and it doesn't feel like that's happening at the moment right so at the moment the measures called for so the the, um, the PFA have said who should be you know and will be fully behind Tony Rudiger they've said we think there should be a government inquiry that to my mind sounds a little bit like a words rather than actions and b passing the buck because we that government inquiry can only say yes we've got a serious problem how do we talk about addressing it and the reality is that the FA, the Premier League, the PFA are the ones that are going to have to get involved in in managing it. Right. Well the government being asked to start an inquiry, I have to say the government haven't had a a tremendous success rate against the rise of, of, of racism when you look at the many other issues that have been going on beyond football whether it's wind rush or you know, even some of the the, the public statements of, of key people in the government then it, it's uh, it's not necessarily a, a group of people who who stand out for their uh, concerned stance on this and and you, you can entirely see Gary Neville's point when he says that that is very much a contingent factor on the the, the rise of this throughout society. At the same time, these organisations control this working environment, which they're in, which I know it's it's a very different working environment to most mm. in the fact that there's a big audience there as well, but they have to provide a safe working environment themselves. Absolutely, yeah. The duty of care. Or, yeah, exactly. Or whatever. I think as well, we're used to people saying it's not just a problem with football, it's a problem with society. And I do understand that argument. But this thing, this specific thing with monkey taunts, seems to me really quite specific to football. I can only imagine that these people have seen it on TV mm. and have copied it. So The curious thing is, if they have seen it on TV, they've almost certainly seen the follow-up where fans have been banned from ever attending the stadium yeah. again. So, so why do people think they can do it well, with that, impunity? That, and that's why I talk about the rise of tribalism. I think these are people who are pushed to their extremes far beyond the reasonable amount that football should persuade them to do. That's not a defence in any way because, as I say, sure. someone only does something racist if they are racist. But I think it's reflective of a rise in football extremism, that right. kind of ed- everything matters for my team. If a player, you know, Ru- Rudiger was, was allegedly racially abused because he overreacted to su- for Sun sending off. So it's, you got my player sent off, therefore everything is now fair game in their eyes. Right. I think that 
that is true. I think it matches the rise in tribalism. That's not an excuse. It's just an explanation. I think. Yeah, I think sadly it also matches a, a certain rise in racism. I agree. Uh, in, in many different ways. <clears throat> You're listening to The Totally Furble Show in association with Paddy Power. The game then... Chelsea bouncing back from four defeats in five and completely dominating Spurs. How, Michael? I think Lampard has to take a huge share of the credit because he came up with a a surprise system, a system they've only played once previously this season away at Wolves, uh, to go with five defenders, which I think, one, caused uh, Spurs a lot of problems because Spurs have effectively been using a front five in possession with Aurier going forward. They were getting overloads against you know teams playing a, a four-man defence. Chelsea didn't have that problem because they had men to cope. And then they were getting their wing-backs and lots of space on the break. And it was balls out to Azpilicueta and Alonso, really, that, that caused Tottenham all the problems. And the goals in different ways came from uh, balls towards Alonso. One that Aurier put out for a corner, a bit unnecessarily. Uh, and then one that Gazaniga produced one of the most remarkable challenges I've ever seen. Um, but it was a clear tactical problem. I mean, you could see watching the game... First half hour, Chelsea were really all over Tottenham. I mean, at half time, Mourinho did fix things by moving towards the back five, but it's a surprise he didn't do it earlier because right. that's one of the things he's renowned for. Well, really. A lot of people suggesting that that didn't fix things so much as make it almost worse in that his players were completely bewildered by the new shape. I didn't get that. I'm surprised anyone was saying that. I thought first 15 minutes, Tottenham came into the game a lot more than they yeah. did in the first and half, also, and it was the Son red card that really ended things. Okay. And I also thought, if anything, you know, so you see Moura in the first half, he was completely bewildered as to what he was supposed to be doing. And I think another argument for your switch to five, this Spurs players know how to play five at the back because this is something that has been used under Pochettino. They're reasonably flexible. But I also think on top of the change in formation, which, of course, confused Spurs a hell of a lot, what I really loved about watching that game was the confidence of Chelsea players and what they were doing. This, this back three uh, that you know played only once before, maybe not even the same players, maybe the same players. The way they were passing the ball around, Tomori on the wing had options where he could turn around and pass it back. Now he'd knock it down like Kante and um, I think Aspiliqueta were dinking the balls in the corner and they said everything was crisp. Everything was so done so, so confidently. And I mean, I asked Lampard after the game about this, like, you know, your team just lost four and five. They they. You know, they did not play like that team and said look the other games were different and the understanding that I had from him and from his press conference as well it's like this is something they worked on all week this is something they were excited about and it looked like his players were playing without any weight which I think is down to the manager because he lets them do this and in addition to the wingbacks pushing up what I really, really enjoyed is the way Mount and Abraham play with each other. With each other. They constantly look for each other. The flicks work. The movement is great. And it's, it is really, really wonderful to watch. And on top of all this, due to their sheer enthusiasm, Chelsea are winning all the second balls. Uh, anything bounces out. Spurs players are like, what's going on? Chelsea are right on top of them. Mm-hmm. And I was so, so impressed with them. Really, really enjoyable performance. That, that midfield battle was, was humiliating for Tottenham. That, I mean... Kante and, and Kovacic, and it could easily have been Kante and Jorginho against Sissoko and Dyer. Is you know, I know Jose Mourinho said that um, I'm happy with this squad. It's a superb squad of players, and I don't need anyone else. But that, I mean, that, that it wasn't a battle at all. Chelsea just swarmed all over them, and in doing that, that then creates the extra space for the players around them. And you talk about Mount and Abraham linking up. The main beneficiary of that was obviously William, who had. I've been one of the individual performances of the season. Right. I know he scored a kind of slightly unusual goal in that he picks it up and no one marks him. Great finish and a penalty. But the touch towards the end when he brings it down and plays in Batshuayi, it was it was absolutely remarkable. And it comes a day after huge reports that Chelsea want Jadon Sancho in January, which when you add in, you know, yesterday 
Pulisic didn't start, Hudson Adoy didn't start, Pedro didn't start. They've got William, they're trying to get Sancho. They're going to have some a huge number of options in that area. Yeah, and it's weird with William as well because he, he'll do this from time to time. He'll be seen as very much heading for the exit and then come up with a period because this has been a while that he's been one of the most influential players in the midfield. It feels like one of those players to me, William, I might be wrong here, but how I see him is that if the first five or ten minutes of the match go well for him and something clicks and he feels like, oh, this is going to be a good day, he suddenly gets that boost where the first touch, the confidence is back and he's playing. When he gets frustrated in the early stages of matches or maybe feels like the formation isn't quite suited to him, he seems to go quiet quite often. It's not really a player necessarily you want to hang your hat on, but the ceiling of his potential is as high as anyone in that Chelsea team, I think. Mm. And he was playing off the left, which we don't see him yeah. do much. So that was a surprise. You know, you expect Mount to play left and Willian to play right. And I guess it does make sense that he's more effective from that position because he was cutting inside and albeit it was from a set piece, but doing the kind of things he did for that first goal. Michael, you mentioned uh, Gazaniga uh, yeah. coming out for that. Uh, <laughs> uh, Sasha, you were tweeting, are the keepers drunk today? Well, <laughs> yeah, this was like two hours after the hair and... But I have no idea how he managed to be judged so badly because clearly the ball came over <clears> and he suddenly realised, Christ, I'm two metres away from it. I must kick it. But how do you misjudge it so badly? Because I don't think it was the bounce or anything like that. Right. He just literally absolutely misjudged it. I think, I think he, I don't use this phrase much, but I think he bottled it. I think he was scared to go in and catch it and put his body in the way and instead just flung a foot at it so he yeah, didn't have physical contact. He intentionally just basically did not come for the ball as he should have. Because yeah, you can yeah. see also Alonso's pulling out like by the time he gets taken out. So right. Yeah, Alonso's still when, yeah. he get, when he gets hit. Right. But, but he's like, he's already checking. Like yeah. he's like, he, he, he it's, this is a lost cause, this ball. It's not like, it's, it's not as if a challenge is going to come in. Um, yeah, it was just b- bizarre, brain fart basically. Yeah, indeed. Probably the biggest misjudgment until about two seconds later when Anthony Taylor gave him a free kick for it. Yeah, he, I, I do have a little bit of sympathy for him on the way that when you, you saw on the television when he gave the decision, he was kind of looking round a man. I think probably what he saw is the fraction of the second after the contact rather than the contact himself. I think he thought both players just collided with each other. And when both players collide and the goalkeeper's one of them, they always give the free kick that way. Unless but it's yeah, De Gea, it, of course. Yeah, but it was, it was obviously a, a, a very, very poor decision. And as we've said on the show before, we generally, as a rule, do not like the AR, but mm. it got the completely the right decision there. And a game-changing moment. I think one small moment of doubt I had, especially when he pointed it the other way, I was thinking maybe sometimes players get cleaned out after the ball's away and it doesn't get given. Like, you know, after a shot and a late challenge comes in and it's already going over the bar, no one bothers. I thought it might have been maybe one of them. But then you look at the replay straight to it's like, wow. <laughs> yeah. I just think sometimes when there's such a weird incident, yeah, just, yeah. the referee, it's almost difficult to process what's happened, you know? So I think it was so strange that he thought... Well, surely Gazaniga hasn't, yeah, yeah. hasn't done surely that. He's not that bad. <laughs> but he did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, also looking at the reaction of Gazaniga's teammates uh, <laughs> yeah. would have been a pretty clear indicator of what had happened. Okay, as for Spurs, not helped by yet another red card for this generation's Lee Catamol, Son Young Min. But by and large, uh, Daniel, you wrote uh, a half of football, I think the first half, was it, that displays yes. the worst of, of Jose Mourinho's game. Slow in possession, nowhere near enough movement, isolated centre forward. Yeah, and this is exactly the, the playbook we saw at the end of his time at Manchester United. It's slightly worrying it's come this early in his Tottenham tenure, but then 
that was always the question about him taking over a team in mid-season when he doesn't have this long, long summer to imprint his demands on the squad is how they would react. Because to be honest, they've got decent results under Mourinho, but the performances haven't been great. They, were, they shouldn't have won at Wolves. They conceded late goals against West Ham and Bournemouth, early goals against Olympiacos. They were very good against Burnley at home, but they were poor at Old Trafford. So I think this has sort of been in the pipeline, particularly those you know the Spurs fans who watched them away at Wolves will say that this was pretty much the same performance, just with a different result. And also it's interesting to see just how frustrated uh, Spurs players were getting because uh, I think as Ali had a set to with Kovacic towards the end of the first half, but he was boiling over from about the 35th minute. Frustration, give the ball here, what's going on? Ah, oh, you've passed it again. So he was clearly going to blow up. And again, Son is, is the same because even though the game had changed, but I think by then so much frustration had built up. He just pitched and kicked out. I think there was frustration as well in that Sissoko challenge on Kepa. Oh, yeah, which yeah, I think that, was, that been that was close breaker. to being yeah. really, really yeah. bad. Jose Mourinho has now faced two of his former clubs uh, with Spurs and lost to both of them. And this result sees his Spurs side languishing six points now off the Champions League positions. We'll talk more about the, the race for fourth uh, in a second or two. Liverpool travel to the King Power Stadium on Boxing Day to play second place Leicester. And if there's one man who knows how to stop Liverpool winning a title when they look certain to win it... It's Brendan Rodgers. Only kidding, Liverpool fans. Calm down, calm down. <laughs> We're offering money back as a free bet on all markets on the match if Liverpool win. Paddy Power, home of the money back special. Applies to all markets on this match only. Max free bet £10. Pre-match singles only. Online exclusive. No shop bets. T's and C's apply. 18 plus. BeGambleAware.org. On Spotify, smart speaker and podcast platforms everywhere, this is the Totally Football Show from Muddy Knees Media. Race for fourth update. Not a good weekend for Man United. Good weekend for Sheffield United. Hoo-hoo. Now alone in fifth place. Remarkable stuff. Mm. Higher than they were in the championship a year ago today. Good Lord. <laughs> good Lord. Man United, anyway, they went to Vicarage Road, bottom of the table. Watford hadn't had a home win all season. And then what happened? We saw exactly what happened with Manchester United against bottom half opposition. They've unbeaten against the six teams above them and uh, they've lost five of 12 against the teams below them. And wow. again, they can't break teams down. And the fact that this goes on only looks worse for Solskjaer. It's all well saying, well, it's just what happens to Manchester United. But the only argument in his defence has been, well, the squad's not good, the midfield's not good. But that only carries weight against the good teams. It doesn't carry weight against Watford and Newcastle and right. Cardiff and other teams he's lost to this year. Uh, Nigel Pearson, meanwhile, what, what an impact he seems to be having. They looked fantastic at Anfield. And then uh, this time they got the breaks that maybe they didn't against Liverpool. Yeah, I mean, the issue all season really has been the finishing. certainly was in the first half of the season. Uh, they were a little bit unfortunate in certain games and they got fortunate here. I mean, the De Gea era was incredible. The Wan-Bissaka tackle was pretty uh, confusing as well. I'm not quite sure why he was doing that. I mean, I thought Watford were the better team. Manchester United just didn't offer anything in possession. And yeah, it's... it's it's almost getting a bit boring talking about them yeah. because it's just we know we've got two lines for Manchester United. Manchester United against big teams, Manchester United against everyone else and it was just the same again. And Watford, any differences you're seeing? A lot of they talk about the intensity of yeah, their training. They, and They made 40 tackles in the last two games which is way up on their season average. Um, and it's, it's easy to say, well, it's a new manager and he would make that happen but Kike Sanchez Flores didn't get that, so mm. credit to Pearson for that. But as Michael says, it was they've played okay in patches this season, but and the goals they scored were as a result of 
calamitous defending and goalkeeping by the opposition rather right. than their own excellence, I think. OK, so too early perhaps to assume that Pearson's mm. going to pull off another Leicester-esque re- re- recovery from relegation. I also would agree with Pearson. I thought they played much better at Anfield, right. uh, certainly from attacking point of view and defensively as well, because, I mean, despite all the United problems, they had like three one-on-ones that, and, you know, Lingard had the chance in the first half. They could, they could have really put them away. Um, but I think from Pearson's point of view, look, he's got a team that now scored, what, 11 goals? He needs to do something with that. And to be, to be honest, at the moment, Saar, he got lucky this time, but the way he was playing at Anfield, you know, air-kicking at open goals, doesn't look like the solution at the moment. Mm. Pearson mm. said after the game, you know, we're not, this doesn't mean anything, which I think we can probably translate as a message to the board as, whoa, 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 whoa. we might have beaten Manchester United here, but I still need, desperately need a couple of players in January. Well, they're going to be bottom at Christmas, but they are six points from safety now. that You've got uh, they and Norwich on 12 points, Villa three points better off, and then just on the other side of the line, Saints on 18th. But there's a lot of sides that look like they could be capable of pushing back up the table. So it is going to take something uh, very interesting the second half of the season for the Hornets, any of those teams down there. Uh, United, meanwhile, quick comment on them. People pointing out the amount of money they spent over the summer on the defence, only to concede goals like that, but not just freakish goals like the De Gea one, but what is it, 13 games now since they've had a clean sheet? Yeah, and this is what we said, you know, a few weeks ago. The problem with Manchester United is not that they haven't bought players. The problem is that, that when they buy players, the culture of the club, the coaching, the management structure, the kind of whole morale around the place is such that the club drags those players down rather than the players dragging them up. You know, who is the last player they signed who has, you know, unquestionably enhanced their reputation at the club? probably only David De Gea and that was 2012 and he's in no form at the moment anyway so yeah this is not a surprise I would have been more shocked if Maguire and Wan-Bissaka had suddenly made them watertight at the back than what we're seeing now Meanwhile Sheffield United with a 1-0 win away at Brighton now alone in 5th place Dan Atkins says is Sheffield United's run of 7 victories all against teams having an off day air quotes a Premier League record (laughs) Michael yeah, they're just a very good team. I think the interesting thing here was that the goal came from really a long ball just down towards uh, Oliver Burney, who finished it very nicely. And I think that is something that Sheffield United have in their game. Uh, a lot of their fans have been quite annoyed when pundits have said, oh, they're a direct side and they're a back-to-basic side. And they're not. They've got so much more to the game, as I think we have spoken about. But in certain games, certainly Arsenal uh, at home, I think, was one of those games where they can play long and they can put crosses into the box and they can play long balls. And teams seem surprised by that. So, yeah, they're a very good team. And uh, I quite like the fact we've got, uh, you know, now that Sam Maximan has scored and now that Almiron has scored, we've got a new Premier League contender for (laughs) most impressive player without scoring a goal, which is... uh, uh, David McGoldrick, who right. managed to miss an open goal here. Uh, two goals also disallowed by VAR in that game. Sheffield United becoming the first ever promoted Premier League side to go their first nine away games unbeaten. They've also, I like this stat, lost fewer away games in England in 2019 than Barcelona have, which is <laughs> nice. Yeah, <laughs> Quite a stat, really. It's 18 unbeaten away games, I think. Wow. Um, and actually, th- this game as well, uh, just briefly, another shocking goalkeeping display. Matt Ryan, both disallowed goals, made terrible mistakes, but just got away with them. All right, up next, Sasha Campione. You're listening to The Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. That's right, bringing the cup back to Anfield and then taking it quietly off the table and putting it in a safe place. That is Liverpool 1-0 winners over Flamengo in the World Club Cup, Cup World Cup thing final on Saturday. Hey, Sash, remember when Klopp 
couldn't win trophies. Seems such an age ago, yeah. six months ago, wasn't it? <laughs> um, but uh, it just shows what happens if you get the right man in time. Give him time. He's been building on the squad every year, adding one player, two players. This summer he did decided he didn't have to add because they had enough. And well, at the moment, as we could see in the semi-final against the Monterrey, they suddenly ran out of centre-backs. They have people who can fill in in the right moments. Um, I know the game against Monterrey felt a bit hairy, and I think you'd see you'd argue there's only four, maybe, first-team players in that. We had the fuller team against Flamengo, but we still had no Fabinho, which I think is of huge importance in terms of why possibly Liverpool lost that midfield game uh, at one stage. But I also think... Great credit to Flamengo because I wasn't really impressed with the way they handled the last two big games um, in terms of pressure. Like uh, against River Plate, the heads just fell off. Um, and luckily, we got to speak to Gilberto Silva uh, last week before Arsenal City. So I dragged them aside also for a separate chat on the potential Flamengo-Liverpool game. And I was like, yo, so, so how, what are they going to do? Because Liverpool are better organised, have better players. And look at, look at Flamengo, they're a bit pathetic, aren't they? And he was, no, like they should just chill out and just play the normal game. And I was like, well, if someone's in their face, how can they play the normal game? And I just didn't really, wasn't convinced by his response. Yet, you know, he's all the wiser and knows football better because this is exactly what they did against Liverpool. Liverpool mm -hmm. came at them, tried to push back their line with long balls over the top. Flamengo settled. They reshaped the midfield. They covered the full-backs well. Uh, they attacked Trent Alexander-Arnold. Yes, they didn't create many chances because I think they concentrate more on defending well, but I thought they, they played a really, really good game. Right. And in actual fact, it was another great game from uh, Alisson, wasn't it? You've been a bit harsh on goalkeepers today. Alisson, Spread it. a little love for... Liverpool fans are saying he's the best keeper since Clemens, and I probably tend to agree with them. Um, again... I don't think he did anything extraordinary in the final, but he made everything look really safe and simple. Against Monterrey, I mean, he made all those saves, but probably one of them was outstanding, but the Liverpool really needed it. Um, and I just looking at his trophies this year, so he won the Copa America, Champions League, European Super Cup, Club World Cup, Yashin Trophy, FIFA Goalkeeper of the Year, Teams of the Year for Everyone, Copa America, FIFA, UEFA, Premier League Golden Glove, Copa America Golden Glove, and this is the Liverpool keeper. This is the guy they've added a year and a half ago. I mean, with that between the sticks... Like, they, no wonder they look quite unbeatable. Right. There's a stat, somebody tweeting that he's played five win-or-go-home matches for Liverpool, either finals or games where Liverpool faced elimination. Flamengo, Salzburg, uh, Spurs, Barcelona and Napoli. And in those matches, he saved all 26 shots on target. It's, it's, the thing is with him, we met him after the City game. So calm. Like, he's just so calm. It's like you just came off, you just played City 10 minutes ago. Come on. So absolutely calm, focused, completely unflappable. And you could see his decision-making. Everything that happens outside doesn't matter. Just does what he does, does what he does. When he was conceding five goals at Anfield for Omer, he was just doing what he was supposed to be doing. He was like, yeah, I've just conceded four, but I've done all I could. He's completely level-headed, no matter what's going on around mm -hmm. him. And I think that calmness spreads the defense. Of course you need Van Dijk there. But this whole team is so grown up, so mature. When things aren't going, as we can see so many times this season, all these late, late winners, time after time after time, it's because they just wear their position down eventually, because they're just completely unflappable, even when they're not playing well. Michael, did you get excited about this game? No, I mean, I, I wouldn't say I was excited, but I don't think people should downplay it. You no. Know, it's a great achievement. It, it suffers, I think, mainly. People are sort of saying, oh, I know South American teams care about it more, but it suffers from its place in the calendar because right. it's, if it came, I know it's very hard to find space in the football calendar, but if it came a week or 10 days after the Champions League final, there's like a cherry on top of that cake fine but the same with the Super Cup it just feels like a bit of an afterthought in this country because everything else is so all-consuming it does feel a bit of a Super Cup I must admit while watching the final uh, people have been talking about three years from today the, the previous week and I was thinking well it is going to be three years from now that they're going to be having a World Cup final in a similar area and possibly in similar kind of stadia 
Is that going to feel slightly weird and oh, kind of otherly as, it as well? It feel incredibly weird to me. And, and more importantly, it will make the following summer feel horrible because we'll suddenly have a collection, a spate of footballer summers, which will make my bank balance cry. I bet they'll think of something. <laughs> yeah, I bet I'm they'll sure come they up with... Uh, yes. Yes. Well, All one right. of the ways that football seems to be adding more fixtures is both Spain and Italy are trying to make their Super Cup into like a four-team tournament, aren't they? In Saudi Arabia. Which, right. which just strikes me as, I know this is slightly off the topic, but we should be cutting back on matches, not adding these silly ones. You don't need semi-finals for a Super Cup. And the, and the Club World Cup is apparently expanding yeah, to, to 32 teams. Or in China. Is it 32? 32? Oh, no, 24. 20, maybe 24. Yeah, but anyway, loads, loads of teams. So And it's, it's supposed to be in China. Well, how long is that going to take? too long I mean there is a seeding system so I mean obviously Liverpool only came in at the semi-final stage this time right. so there will continue to be a seeding system I think but it's still a nonsense next up back in the UK for Man City Leicester you're listening to the Totally Football Show with James Richardson Saturday Man City coming from behind to make it three Premier League wins in a row Kevin De Bruyne unstoppable yeah, he was brilliant again. I think he's been the best player in the league this season, which might sound crazy when Liverpool are 10 points clear with uh, a game in hand, but he's just dominating almost every game he plays in. He's got the ability to control the game, to score goals, and I think more than anything else, obviously to provide assists. And he's almost he's almost finding a new position, I think, that I haven't really seen any player just be so good in that right-hand channel in such a variety of ways. He can cross from deep, he can charge in behind... And it was really his relationship with uh, Mares mm. uh, in this game that was pulling Ben Chilwell all over the place. Chilwell's an excellent left back. Uh, indeed, I think there's a good chance he might go to City at some point. But the combination of the two of them, they just couldn't cope with. Right. Do you know who made the most tackles of anyone on the pitch? De Bruyne. It was De Bruyne. Mm. Yeah. But, but also this role, like, so we could see like last week he destroyed Arsenal, pretty, not on his own, but you know he did the finishing. This this time it was pretty much the selfless role for Marius because Marius had like ten shots yeah. and four on target. Whereas I think De Bruyne just basically created the space for him. And I think this is what's so impressive is his selfless running when required. He's happy to do it. It's, it's strange because Pep Guardiola is obviously all about the process, all about the system, all about the kind of intricacies of the football. But actually, City are at a stage at the moment with De Bruyne in the form he is, where the team only has to be get the ball to Kevin De Bruyne and he will do it. You know, it doesn't. It almost doesn't need to be complicated. It, it just needs to be as soon as you get the ball, shuttle it out to him. Almost like remember when Southampton used to play with Letizia and it just used to be Alan Ball just used to say, "Look, get the ball, give it to Matt, and he will do it." It's almost the same with City now. In that, the quicker they can get it to to him, the more space they can find it. And Arsenal gave him too much space, but Leicester didn't. He did it without you know without having that luxury of twenty yards. That's all they need to be at the moment until they get back into complete rude health. And, and also he can create space where where there is none, like he did for his um, assist for the third goal. He just basically went through three players. Mm. Um, I do think though that Leicester could have possibly put a midfielder there, tried to maybe man mark him because I don't think they would have lost anything from attacking sense because Vardy was completely cut off anyway. Mm. The only support he had was I think was from Barnes. So I think maybe pulling back Tielemans or someone might have yeah. possibly helped. Them a bit. Yeah, speaking of Barnes and Vardy, lovely opening goal from. from I, from I just think Jamie Vardy is such a hero. He's basically playing against City on his own. Like, if you look at the heat, like at the average positioning, there's basically Leicester team and Vardy is somewhere up there. And I've seen I've seen strikers really wilt in those situations mm. where he absolutely relishes it. And he's you know, like a special forces guy dropped behind enemy lines, and then he loves it. You know, yeah. the, the, the more the more enemy enemies he has, I think, the better he feels about the whole thing. Mm. Um, and had Barnes been slightly 
more maybe aware and support. They could have got a couple of goals as well. Um, I don't know with Vardy. It's like, are some people just born with so much health that they can destroy it in the early part of their life, like Vardy obviously did with his terrible lifestyle, that by the time they get to 33, when they stop drinking all the fizzy drinks, they're suddenly really healthy and actually are better physically than when they were before because that's what he seems to be doing. I don't know, Sash. It's a very interesting uh, question. Rogers has said that when asked that... um, he has spoken to Vardy about kind of fine-tuning his game and right. he is certainly doing less of the kind of unnecessary sprinting, the running after a centre-back who just passes it to the side. He's kind of been fine-tuned in that respect, but I think that actually makes it harder because when he only had one mode of sprint, 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 it was easier for him. Now he has to time those runs and pick when to run and he's doing that as well. Having said that, um, I remember I was discussing this with someone that, yeah, he should run less. Um, my colleagues came over to commentate, <clears throat> I think it was Leicester Arsenal or something, and their whole thing was, how is Vardy able to close down half the Arsenal defence? And I was like, so maybe he's doing less running, but it's still relatively less running. Yeah, right. The other thing, such is that given the way that medical opinion kind of comes and goes, it might turn out that Skittles and energy drinks and vodka are, are actually really good for you. This, you know, might just be the best Pickle preparation. Him. Yeah, himself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Possibly so. I'm a bit surprised I haven't heard a single person discuss the fact that Vardy is, what, five or six goals clear at the top of the goalscoring mm. charts and has retired from England, you two. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I saw, it seems I, extraordinary. I saw a tweet this weekend that said, uh, like, un, you know, the sort of controversial opinion, Vardy's retiring from England duty has made far more of a distance than Skulls retiring early from England duty <laughs> in terms of that extra option for, for Kane. Yeah, it's, it is interesting because he would be perfect for that England team at the moment in, mm. in, as a kind of plan B. Next up for Jamie Vardy and the Foxes is, of course, Liverpool. It's going to be a tough one for Liverpool. Right. I think there's going to be a bit of... Leicester trying to bounce back. Um, I do think the journey to Qatar is fatiguing. Liverpool. Well, I made wanted a... to ask you about that. So some people had suggested that Liverpool were actually going to use it as a bit of a mid-season kind of sunshine break. How intensive was the training? Was the, were they able to schedule it? You talked about a lot of the first teamers being out for the semi-final. Were they able to use it at all as a kind of mini-training well, camp? They all... Um, they were all training from Monday with odd players missing. Like Ronaldo was missing. I think yeah, he didn't play in the final at all. Uh, Van Dijk then was ill. Uh, but it seems to be, well, they definitely had the time off because the majority, well, a lot of the first team players did not play against Monterrey. Mm. And I think given the current situation where they're playing every three days, that's actually a big boon in itself. Um, but I think the travel, uh, its it, I don't know, it just messes up with your body. Um, and I think they have a day off today and they're back in training tomorrow. Uh, but also... I just think it's a very tough game to come back to for Liverpool. And uh, again, Vardy running hard at that central defence. What if Van Dijk still isn't that well? Having said that, one big bright thing about the final, Joe Gomez, I think, is back to his form. So the whole Joe Gomez-Van Dijk partnership is back to what it is. And they're both rapid, so they might be able to cope with Vardy better than Liverpool have done in the past. Right. Um, But I think it's certainly nice that they did not have a midweek game, like 100%, if you like. Okay, they did. I'm sure they played Aston Villa, didn't they? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> anyway, uh, Liverpool, is this right? Liverpool haven't been defeated since the first game of 2019. Mm. In the league. In yeah. The league, yeah, yeah, in against the league. Manchester City. Uh, Man it's City. the longest unbeaten run in history. In 34 the... Premier League games. And they were really Leicester... unlucky to lose that yeah. as well. Right. Leicester unbeaten at home this season, as you see, with all the motivation, even if the, the idea of a title mm. uh, challenge does seem a bit far-fetched, but with all the motivation to bounce back here from their uh, defeat against Man City. It's a big game for Brendan Rodgers as well, not just because it's against his former club, but because they, they have struggled to raise their game against the biggest clubs in the league, which, you know, we've seen quite a lot of contrasts and comparisons between between this season and 2015-16, but obviously their strength that season was unnerving and unsettling 
the best teams in the league beating Manchester City. They haven't done that yet this season. They they didn't turn up at Old Trafford. They were unlucky against Liverpool, but still lost. And this is a big test for Rodgers because the one criticism is that there's no obvious plan B because they're so centred around what Vardy does. You know, he didn't adapt midfield. He still left Ndidi on his own against, you know, De Bruyne and, and players pushing on. He, he probably needs to try and find something different because it would be really hard to put a disappointing spin on a brilliant start to the season. But that 11-point gap to fifth means he now kind of has a free roll of the dice against those biggest teams because he's probably going to beat most of the bottom half. I think they've only dropped two points in 11 games against the bottom teams you know, teams outside the big six. So, yeah, a big challenge for Rodgers. Okay. In fairness on the plan B thing, I mean, I, I did think that going into the game against Everton and then he changed to play with two up front with, with the Inacho. So I think to a certain extent... Yeah, he, could, got a... he could do that. He could try and, you know, the, the speed of Van Dijk and Gomez, if he could play both of them and almost a sort of... That's what I mean about free roll of the dice. Just try and go hell for leather and, and unnerve teams it just feels like they're not quite good enough and it's not Rodgers' fault to go toe for toe against that team so he had to try something different I think and it's also quite important to note in this as well it feels like Liverpool at the moment are not going at 100% every single game because they, I think they just can't because they need to pace themselves so if Leicester forced them to play to the full abilities I mean what, what would happen then can Liverpool even do 100% at the moment maybe, maybe they can only do 90 could be one of the games of the season this uh, next, we'll be talking about a match that certainly wasn't. 99 Problem says, I just listened to Thursday's pod and I can explain pneumonia pass if anyone's still interested. This was a Polish footballing uh, expression about a uh, optimistic long ball. You know, when you basically pass and it's just asking too much of the your uh, your teammate. For a striker to get caught at the end of it would require effort so intense, explains 99, uh, that it would give them pneumonia. I'm not sure the medical thing behind that, but anyway, there's other lung-related phrases like to leave one's lungs on the field. I think we can all uh, get on board with. Thanks, Nantinan, for that. Uh, I like Sasha's, uh, their heads fell off. Their heads yeah. fell off. <laughs> well, I, I that, that sounds like sort of halfway between uh, something Pep Guardiola would say and halfway between something Paul Merson would say. Right. Yeah. Although extremes. I did feel that was a little bit harsh given that they did win it with two goals at the death. But they, they really, really struggled badly. When, right. when, 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 um, they put the heads face. back on though. Diego came on to put the heads back on. Right. And yes. I actually think the way they created the equaliser was actually very, very smart. But right. that's, it took a lot of doing basically. And their okay. heads screwed on. Screwed, screwed, screwed on. <laughs> Uh, the uh, worst game in Premier League history. Uh, we've, we've been talking about Everton Arsenal, but Sash, you're going to make a case for Bournemouth Burnley, the match with the fewest shots in Premier League history, or at least since anybody started writing it down in 2003. Um, yeah, it did have a goal though, Sasha, didn't it? Yeah, first shot on target, the only shot on target, 89th minute. Burnley completed 99 passes in the second half against Bournemouth. Um, but I mean, it was expected because Burnley, I think, averaged the second lowest pass completion of anybody apart from Newcastle so it wasn't a surprise the XG in the first half was I saw somewhere 0.05 the highlights on match of the day included someone hitting it down the line and then out Francis getting injured and Lermo having a shot from 30 yards about 30 yards over the bar that was the highlights of the first half second half not sure anything happened um maybe Harry Wilson's missing he's back at Liverpool with a weird dead leg that keeps on getting inflamed apparently but, I mean, this was abysmal. But I think also something has to be said, not just for Burnley, but for Bournemouth. 
they're not playing well this season. Yeah. And uh, so they've got 19 goals. <laughs> Daniel's got Matt Davies Adams, got a friend. That's good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, but the, <laughs> Six uh, defeats in seven. No, but it's, it's not just that. It's just how they're scoring goals. Like right. They scored 19 this season, but 10 of them came from set pieces. So they're not really scoring from open play. They're not playing very good football. Getting very stodgy and, um, yeah, and just drawn into this awful, terrible games that they right. couldn't do anything with. Well, speaking of awful, terrible games, uh, Arsenal at Everton, one of the worst Premier League experiences ever. Mm. Bournemouth against Burnley, one of the worst ever. Arsenal play Bournemouth next. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the Everton-Arsenal game, I accept Sasha's nomination, but A, you got a goal, and B, I wouldn't have necessarily expected that game to be brilliant. I thought Everton-Arsenal might be good. I thought it was a very weird bubble of two caretaker managers both who are likely to be staying on but also in their last games in charge and two managers watching from the stands for their new team so mm. I thought all the players will try to do their damnedest to impress the new managers and it was horrific it lots really of was. shots of Ancelotti shaking his head yeah uh, I mean that's a, a good that's kind of stock image isn't it were, were, were there similar pictures of uh, Arteta's reaction he was I mean, obviously, I, I was at the game, so I didn't see it on telly, but right. apparently he was glaring at players. It looked like players were was, was scared of making mistakes, and therefore, as soon as they got the ball, just hit it long. Right. There were so many long balls just straight out of play. It was, it was, yeah, it was abysmal. Um, I think there were two shots on target in the match, but nothing really to speak of. Everton didn't have a single one. Um, and both managers, I think I wrote, they were probably mainlining mulled wine at half-time. We're going to see what impact they have on Boxing Day. As I mentioned, Arsenal taking on uh, Bournemouth uh, down at the Vitality and uh, Ancelotti kicking off his reign at home to Burnley. Which one do you anticipate having a bigger impact? Which one do you think is going to be a bigger success, Michael? I think they're both good appointments, but um, I'm more excited for Arteta. I think that's a really good appointment. I think he's a very intelligent, studious coach, and I think being assistant manager to the most innovative coach of his generation for the past three and half years is a pretty good preparation. Well, also because we've never actually seen him manage, so it's tremendous interest to see all this reputation. How is it going to play out? Ancelotti, I think the key thing is going to be how many Napoli players is he going to buy in in, in January? Conveniently, the club's desperate to ship loads of them out as well. I wonder how much of um, uh, how much of a fact in his hiring was the fact that he can actually beat Liverpool. Oh, right, yeah. It should be said said he's confirmed this morning that Duncan Ferguson will not just stay, but stay as his assistant manager. Right. Which is quite a big thing really mm-hmm. and, and, and a, you know, kudos to Ferguson I don't think he would have got that appointment without this two three game spell he's had so it shows the, the difference in Everton from Marco Silva to him that he has stayed as assistant manager he might have stayed on as a, an under 23 or under 18s coach but I don't think he would have been Carlo's assistant if he hadn't have got the, the results he's got and the performances he's got OK well that's all coming up on Boxing Day Bournemouth Arsenal which, if Arteta does get off to a winning start, could leave the cherries in all sorts of trouble. Uh, Josh Farley saying, do the panel think the relegation picture is as clear-cut as it seems, i.e. three from the current bottom four? Uh, Watford and Villa have a number of excellent players. Norwich are capable of the odd shock result. And Southampton have a strong goal scorer in Ings. That rustling noise is us all reaching for the standings. So Saints are just what one just above three points yeah yeah three points above the the bottom three. I think he I think Ings is the most influential player in that relegation battle. He scored twelve goals in his last thirteen games, and now uh, I think I mentioned it last Monday on the show and said he had the third best conversion rate of any player in the Premier League with wow. twenty shots. He's now second, so only behind Jamie Ooh. Vardy, gone ahead of Aubameyang. Um, when you only get a certain number of chances, Southampton are not good at creating chances. It, it hugely increases the pressure on on your ability to take those chances and he seems to have carried that 
perfectly. I know Villa helped him out with their defending at the weekend, but 12 goals in 13 games for, for that Southampton is a really, really good effort. Only the third Saints player to reach double figures for Premier League goals before Christmas ever after Matt Letizia and uh, James Beattie. So when you look at, at the table then, who else do you see potentially in danger? Is it everyone from Brighton down? Brighton in 13th place, currently five points above the drop. Would that be fair? Who do you think might get sucked into it? Yeah, as I think per it, our question. Yeah, I think it's. I, th- I agree, it's Brighton down. And I, I th- think I probably said it last Monday, I think it is three from those bottom four. I really do. I think West Ham and Everton will get better. Mm. I don't think Bournemouth will get dragged in and... And that's about it. You don't think Bournemouth will get dragged in? I can't say they will now. No, no, I don't think they will. And I think it's absolutely extraordinary that we're not talking about Newcastle in terms of relegation anymore. Currently in ninth place. Above Arsenal. Yeah, I've said before, I think that this uh, is an unusual Premier League because there aren't any really bad teams. Uh, There's no Huddersfield and Fulham from last year. And I think the number of points required to stay up might be the highest. Highest it's been probably for about 10 years, actually. Really? Okay. Aston Villa with all sorts of problems, not least the horrible injury to... Uh, John McGinn with a fractured ankle likely to be out, they say, for three months. Problem, of course, for Scotland as well. Uh, Villa are taking on Norwich next as a amenable run of fixtures continues uh, for the villains. Norwich, who were beaten at home by Wolves at the weekend, despite going a goal up yeah. in the first half. I think that's them done, actually. I know that's, that seems a really sweeping thing to say when they're not even bottom of the table, but they were really, really good first half. They went 1-0 up. Everyone was like, right, the only thing you haven't done is scored two or three more goals, and then they lost at home. Those sort of results at this time of year are a real punch to the gut of, of promoted clubs. Wow. I, I thought it was <clears throat> their approach was really curious because everything went through Buendia in the final, you know, the final pass. I think I read some they had like nine key passes, you know, setting up chances. They were all his, no one else. Yeah, he's his second yeah. second top chance creator. Yeah, in the yeah, league. It's, it's absolutely really? mad. And yeah. Uh, but yeah, Puki obviously didn't finish them. But um, does anyone want to talk about Adama Traore? Um, always. <laughs> um, so um, I thought um, this is the photo of him after the game. Oh, it's just frightening. He's got arm bigger than my waist. So obviously, the guy who I, I thought could only run in straight lines, um, <laughs> he created the first goal because he goes inside takes four players with him uh-huh. and then Jimenez I think is in lots of space and they get a corner from it and then they score afterwards and he did it a couple of times and his movement in the last I don't know two, three months is just so much improved over what was what is, we had before Is he the revelation of the season for you? I, I think he's a revelation of coaching because uh, this time last year um, I think probably maybe to the day uh, Liverpool uh, beat Wolverhampton 2-0 the only thing he could do back then was run and then uh, Van Dijk burned him for pace, and I thought that's Traore finished because mm. that's, that's the one thing he had. Um, um, Espirito Santo was um, disheartened on the touchline trying to coach him, and here we are a year later. Poor, wow, this is just a huge, huge improvement in what he does, how he thinks about the game, how he creates space, um, and I think, you know, just credit to the coach as much as the player, I think, because he's stuck with it. All right, Sasha. Well, you mentioned Newcastle with, uh, with, with approval up in ninth place, and of course... They're coming off a 1-0 win over Palace. What a special day it was at St James's. 11 months, 27 Premier League appearances, 47 shots later, Miguel Almiron finally scored for Newcastle. A goal I thought would never come. Just the nicest celebration afterwards, no? Yeah, it was a great moment. Not just a goal, but a big goal late in the game against... uh, Aside probably a little bit like Newcastle, probably not in relegation trouble actually, but, you know, a really big game to win. And to be honest, I, th- I thought Palace played quite well here and, and Newcastle really snatched it at the end. But uh, often as a supporter, those are the most uh, enjoyable victories when you don't really deserve it. I just want to say for Newcastle, they've got the same 
home points as or the same home record now as Manchester United. They've taken more home points than Chelsea. They've only taken three points less at home than Manchester City. They've somehow turned St James's into a fortress at exactly the time when we thought it would be the opposite because right. of the mood around the club. They're dreadful on the road, but apart from the win at Tottenham, but yeah, is, they're getting it done. Is at home. Steve Bruce actually better than Rafa Benitez? Is that uh, no? I don't think so. No, and there has been a bit of a misnomer thing about Newcastle fans like, oh, you never wanted Bruce. What they didn't like was the fact that the club had let Rafa Benitez go, and right. they didn't they didn't think Bruce was as good as he's turned out or would do as well as he's turned out he has so right. far. But the point was about a club giving in and getting rid of the best manager they'd had in a long time. It wasn't necessarily just about Steve Bruce, but he has done better than we thought. Or certainly better than I thought. Yeah. Complete mayor culpa on that. I also really liked, I don't know if anyone else on this one, but Roy Hodgson's interview on Match of the Day was really good because the interviewer just said, were you annoyed at how you defended the uh, the ball to Andy Carroll? And Hodgson just went, he's Andy Carroll, that's what he does. <laughs> Which I yeah. just, just think, like, I'm not, I'm, I genuinely think that sometimes we look for so much detail. It, it reminds me a little bit of when a player gets told off for not tracking a run. Well, he does track a run, but he's just not quick enough. It right. was that kind of thing. They did everything they could to mark him. But if the ball's perfect, you're not going to outjump Andy Carroll. And also, Andy Carroll is j- trying to outjump the fullback, who's usually much shorter. In this case, Kelly's actually quite a big lad. But I've seen Carroll destroy Liverpool's fullbacks just because he's twice the size. Yeah, what, exactly. what can you do? Could Carroll be one of the stories of the second half of the season, do you think? He's, he's been quite effective since he's coming to the, the game. team. Yeah, and the problem, the problem is, is that he's... He's unfortunately for him, he's never more than two or three months from a hamstring injury. So that's what we'll wait for. Also right. perfect for Christmas, Carol. Nice. <laughs> okay, well, that's all the weekend's action. We've got a bumper final section coming up for you with some questions and all sorts of uh, continental thoughts and that. Uh, first off, though, let's get some odds uh, with producer Ben and, of course, Paddy Power. Hello, listeners. Here is Lee Price on the line, and we're going to talk about the Boxing Day fixtures, Lee. Uh, Leicester versus Liverpool is the biggie. What's going to happen here, please? Hi, Ben. Yeah, is this the official end of the title race? I think we all accepted that it was gone a while ago, but this could confirm it. Liverpool, the favourites here, as you'd expect. They're evens, though, so they're not odds on. It's not often I say that this season. Leicester at home, 12-5 to to get the win. The draw's 13-5. to They're up against it, but they do have, in Jamie Vardy, the most likely player on the pitch to score, according to our odds anyway. It's 11-10. to He notches any time. And we do have a special offer here. Money back as a free bet of Liverpool win, as they tend to. Applies to all markets. Max bet £10. TNCs apply. Over to Man United versus Newcastle then. I fancy Man U. What say you? Well, we priced this one very comfortably in Manchester United's favour, but we would have said similar back in October, and look what happened there. It's 3-10 to 10, the home team get the win here. Newcastle prices at 15-2 to 2, to offer another shock, with the draw 4-1. to 1. If you do fancy a repeat of that match, 1-0 to Newcastle is 22-1, to 1, or if you want to go really big on lightning striking twice, it's 177-1 to 1, that Newcastle win 1-0 with Matty Longstaff scoring the goal. And finally, Everton versus Burnley. Give us some numbers here, please. Hashtag welcome Mr. Ancelotti. And he has a 100% record against Burnley, having beaten them both times his Chelsea side played them in the 2009-10 season. So a good opponent to start with. And I think that omen bodes well. It's 4-6 to six that his new team Everton win this. Burnley are 4-1. to one. The draw is 11-4. As for his impact on the Toffees, we're now predicting that he'll finish top half. But it is narrow. It's 5-4 to four that Everton finished in the top 10. We predict they'll finish 10th one place above their opponents. You can find out these odds and more at paddypower.com or the Paddy Power app. Prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's over 18, Tony. Terms and conditions apply. And when the fun stops, stop. 
T-Mac keeps sending in a tweet and will continue to do so, Sasha, until somebody reads it out. So here goes. When did the knee slide become so popular as a goal celebration? Which player is most responsible for its popularity? And is it the most aesthetically pleasing compared with the other main goal celebrations? Well... It has to be quite muddy. He has to slide quite a distance. My it's... favourite knee slide is when the player does a little turn at the end as well. Ooh. Almost like a car sort yeah. of pulling into a space at speed. My favourite one is when it isn't muddy and the friction causes the player to stop immediately and then tip forwards. Mm. You know, the momentum and his knees just act as a handbrake and he and goes he flying. He gets up and he's covered Face. in blood. Yeah. My, my granddad, who has no interest in football whatsoever, uh. routinely asks me why managers don't ban their players from doing knee slides. Well, you, it's interesting because I, I always thought that the more dangerous in terms of picking up injuries would be when everybody piles on the, the back of the goal scorer because surely they're... Has Eden Hazard um, banned himself from doing these slides because he scabbed all his knees up and said he wouldn't do them anymore? Oh, really? Yeah. When he was at Chelsea, yeah. Who who would you consider the most iconic knee slide? I mean, you got Mourinho as well. If you're gonna, I feel like Didier Drogba used to do mm. a few knee slides. That's a player who jumps out for a knee slide. Who's the current knee slider? I can't really think of. Omri liked a knee slide, but he yes. also had his he had his socks over his knees almost, yeah. so he didn't have that. Uh, Hazard. Skis on his legs. Yeah. Yeah. So basically better than Hazard from that point of view. <laughs> yeah. T-Mac, there you go. You can rest easy now. Merry Christmas. Uh, the European leagues have all broken for Christmas, Sasha. Yeah, they have. Yeah. Uh, Bundesliga's not back till I think the 17th of January. Proper winter break. It is, isn't it? Uh, they leave with Leipzig now top of the pile. Seven points separating the uh, top five, so it's beginning to spread out a little bit more. You've got RB Leipzig, then Mönchengladbach, then Bayern, Dortmund and David Wagner's Schalke. La Liga breaks for Navidad with Barcelona two points clear of Real Madrid, who got held to a goalless draw by Athletic Club de Bilbao. Barcelona, meanwhile, were racking the goals up against Alaves with Leo Messi reaching 50 goals for club and country for the ninth season in the past 10. I feel like we're going to look back, I mean, we're going to look back on Leo Messi in 20 years, whatever, and be very very fondly, but we're going to look back on that 2012 where he scored 91 goals for Barcelona and, and Argentina. I mean, that's, it, even now, it's, I cannot fathom. I watched the video. There's a video out there you can find it on Twitter of all 91 goals. I mean, that's genuinely extraordinary. Quite a few of them would look exactly like the one he did against Absolutely. Alaves, no? when he's got half the other team converging on him and he just still oh, produces yeah. almost a ball that doesn't seem to have been kicked so much as hit from another dimension, if you see what I mean. It just suddenly explodes off his foot without any kind of... And I think the, the keeper is caught, I think, off, off guard by the pace of the ball. He just doesn't expect mm. it to he does. He does that one and he does the the side foot pass into the bottom corner and they're the, they're the two, aren't they? They're the, there's two finishes. I remember there was a... Two-trick pony. There was a goalkeeper, this was a long time ago, I can't remember who, one of the La Liga goalkeepers who said the difficult thing about facing Messi is his stride length is so short that you can never tell at what point he's going to shoot, huh. which I thought was an interesting analysis. It is an interesting analysis. Barcelona, as I say, too clear now on top with uh, Sevilla behind Real Madrid in third. Then you've got Atletico Madrid and Real Sociedad, where Martin Odegaard continues to impress. Did you see the free kick he struck uh, this weekend mm. in the winner? I think it was Osasuna. Oh, it was a thundering shot. Barcelona and Real Madrid. Michael, you wrote about how bad the Clasico was last week. We kind of skimmed over it on Thursday. Yeah, it was disappointing. I just don't think the sides are at a particularly high level compared to how they've been for the, the last decade or so. And mm. uh, I think you can go from that to watching Man City and Liverpool and uh, there's quite a clear difference in quality. 
But my, my question would be because I saw the stat that apparently Real conceding only 12 and 18 round of game in 18 games in La Liga is the best result in 32 years. Are they good defensively now? Or is La Liga, is La Liga standard dropping a bit? Uh, I guess they are. I mean, the flip side is I think they've scored fewer goals this calendar year than they have for about 13 years or something. So maybe they are better defensively, but they're worse offensively. Mm. All right. Hey, Syria. Plenty wow. of goals there. Where Boy. to start? Adam Rodriguez says, not sure, sure if you're doing a Euro edition this week. Sadly, Adam, we're not. Everyone went off on their holidays. Uh, but... Here's your question. What the heck has happened to Milan? I know Atalanta are good, but 5-0. So this was uh, the action in Bergamo this weekend as uh, Atalanta uh, absolutely smashed Milan. And it was it was painful to watch almost. Uh, wonderful opening goal from Papu Gomez, who, if you don't like Papu Gomez, not sure what, what you're doing watching football. Um, <laughs> but uh, serious problems there with uh, Milan, who already changed manager once. And uh, today's paper is very much the opinion that this is going to provoke a crisis right at the heart of the club where they've been in the hands of a a hedge fund, effectively, since the collapse of the the Chinese takeover. A lot of suggestions about where that Chinese money actually came from. And the other side of the the nightmare right now for the Rossoneri as they languish in 11th place is that top of the table on goal difference are Inter. Mm. They're uh, neighbours. Lukaku scored twice. The second one was a hammered finish. The type of finish he only does when he's in form. But the lovely moment was obviously them winning the penalty and him giving it to Esposito. Mm. 17-year-old. 17-year-old. And And who had never scored. His hug with his mother afterwards. Yeah. But it's just lovely the way that Lukaku gives him the ball, has a little whisper in his ear, and then obviously goes to celebrate with him afterwards. He's so a, a big win for him to 4 0 over Genoa, who uh, Thiago Motta out now, and, and mm. looks like they're going to bring back a chap called Davide Ballardini for the fourth time. <laughs> <laughs> so that's. Uh, still have that so owner? he's got the DNA. Sorry? Do they still have the Genoa owner? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Preziosi. Yeah, 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 yeah. And if you're curious about that Genoa owner and all the hijinks he's got up to, there is, of course, a special Golazzo all about him and briefcases full of cash and all that good stuff. When was the last time Juventus were not top of Serie A at Christmas? I think though, that's an interesting question, Daniel, to which I don't have the answer. Goal but I just wanted to say that the, the Lukaku finish you're talking about, was that the the really special goal where it's bouncing off Ficino and Candreva and they do this wonderful series of flicks heading up the field? I think maybe that was the first that goal. That was the first goal. The second was just a lash finish in the top right. corner off the bar. But that that um, first goal was yeah, amazing he, as well. The, the build-up, the didn't it? And then the, the the couple of touches he takes to beat the defender in the top corner. Mm. Yeah, I mean it, it's 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 fantastic to see Inter doing well again because like Milan, they've had many years of just and that was without frustration. Obviously, because Esposito played, that was without Latoro and Martinez this weekend. Yeah, well, which is obviously important because he's Lukaku's their top scorer, but Martinez has been easily their player of the season. I think. Absolutely, another big result in Italy. We're going big on an Italy section this week. Uh, was. Roma's 4-1 win over Fiorentina at Fiorentina, which has led to Vincenzo Montella also getting the heave-ho from the Florentine Why do Fiorentina club. just keep going on these ridiculous losing runs? It's like know. every six months they lose like ten, almost 10 straight. Yeah. Shame. I, I mean, I know he really hasn't done well this time around, but his first stint at Fiorentina was one of my favourite Italian really, of recent years. They just played such good football, but they were pretty hapless in this game. I, I watched this one and I mean, I think for Zaniola to score as well, you know, after they released him. I mean, that must be yeah. one of the worst decisions to release a player in recent memory. <laughs> but it's funny because he was he was also let go, of course, by Inter as well, who, uh, you know, can imagine him playing on the wing, feeding stuff into uh, 
to Lukaku. Having said that, in this, his partnership with Pellegrini is just looking extraordinary. How, how good does Pellegrini look right now? Lawrence yeah, Pellegrini? they're both excellent. I mean, it's Roma just always play good football, don't they? I always enjoy. They're one of the teams over the last 20 years, any season. They play different styles from one season to the next, but there has always been a culture of good, positive attacking football. And they, 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 They're feeling that under Paolo Fonseca, the former Shakhtar man, um, this is turning into a really vintage side. So anyway, lots of managers getting the boot just in time for Christmas. Meanwhile, one new manager, Sasha, finally tasting victory. Napoli gets a 94th minute winner. I also read that in the 86th minute of the game away to Sassolo, 1-0 at the time, uh, the away fans, Napoli fans, started singing, if you don't win, we will kill you. <laughs> After I mean, which they got the winner. Duncan Ferguson did pretty well on as a caretaker <laughs> on the back of the same principle, so maybe it works. The, um, Super Cup as well got played in Saudi Arabia, traditionally mm. enough. <laughs> and uh, big surprises, uh, Juve kind of failed to turn up for this. Mm. And Lazio ran out 3-1 winners, which is not to kind of undervalue the work that Simone Inzaghi, which still I can't get my head around the fact that he's a really good manager. <laughs> um, wonderful. And, and Daniel, as you are pointing out, they are very much now in the title yeah. race. Six points behind Inter and Juve with a game in hand. It feels a long time since we've had a, a proper battle at the top of Serie A. And, it's and great. no Europe. Because yes. they managed to get themselves knocked out of the Europa League. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what what Inter do in the in the Europa League. Given, obviously, they would they would prioritise a title race as Scudetto, but decisions to make. I watched a bit Inter a bit this season. I love to see Diego go down. It's great that he's suddenly gone to Inter and now they've got the best defence in Serie A after being at Atletico for all those times. Atletico are now struggling slightly in defence, and he's still doing his old thing. Talking of Inzaghi in title races, Serie B. Benevento, oh, yeah. top of the league, running away with it, and they just beat Frosinone 1-0. Frosinone managed by uh, Nesta. That's my contribution. Very <laughs> nice. <laughs> Sasha, your, your commitment to a thorough reporting of <laughs> continental football is, is magnificent. Do you know what's happened in Ligue 1 as well, since you're there? Uh, oh, God. Well, yes, PSG I... won, of course. They beat Amiens 4-1. They, they go into the winter break, eight points clear. Monaco are up to seventh. That's pretty surprising. They uh, they made. Uh, I think it, it sounds like um, the players came to Jardim and told them to change the system to three five two, and they won five one. Is that what happened? Five yeah. one over Lille. So yeah, very nice. They're in uh, they're in seventh place. Marseille, Andre Villas-Boas, Marseille are up in second place, and that anyway, they'll be back uh, on the tenth of January. The fifth of January is when Italy's back and uh, all that kind of thing. Uh, Russian football. Sasha, you you gone off on your winter break. When when does that return? Uh, it returns at the um, I think third of March. And there is lots of conversation at the moment about um, whether we switch, should switch back to going spring autumn rather than autumn spring because autumn spring doesn't make any sense. There's a huge hole in the middle of the season anyway. Yeah. And Russian clubs have just had an absolute shocker in Europe. Yes, uh, the worst season in eighteen years. I think the first time they have no clubs in springtime since two thousand. It's going to be weird to have organised sporting action uh, in uh, in. <laughs> In the spring, with no Russian athletes taking part. Well, that's, that's, let, let, let's see. Footballers are considered to be athletes. I don't know. Are they athletes? <laughs> uh, but yeah, the, certainly the, the whole water investigation is causing quite a stir. Right. Uh, I think there's a lot of reaction to the extent. It's like, well, what what are they doing? Like, like in terms of officials and yeah. the the whole thing with hiding databases, changing results. You know, this. I mean, what are you doing? Um, so I think there's a lot of discussion about just the state of Russian sport. Okay. All right, Zenit with a 10-point lead going into the winter break. Our winter break, Daniel, is a comparatively brief mm. affair. We'll be back on Friday when we'll be joined by Refil Honigstein, uh, Duncan Oily Sailor, and ooh, Frida Fagerland as well. So she can tell us all about Christmas Swedish style and also the fact that, and this is good news, Ostersunds have been saved.
So David Priest is still, well, you know, he'll be he'll be delighted anyway. Super. Uh, for now, all that remains to be said is many, many thanks and happy festivities uh, to Michael, to Daniel, to Sasha, and you, listener. Have yourself a great day on Wednesday and a happy new year if you don't rejoin us before. But otherwise, we'll be here on Friday. So hope to be speaking to you then. Bye-bye for now. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, a Muddy Knees Media production. For sales and advertising, please email sales at muddykneesmedia.com. Keep up to date with everything across our Totally Football network at The Totally Show on Twitter. And make sure you check out our brand new website too, thetotallyfootballshow.com. <laughs>